son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And I guess if we really had any sensibilities at all, we'd just sit here and cry. I think that's where we were anything except as hard-hearted as we are. That the creator of the universe would not only, for the sake of being our mediator, be willing to take flesh upon himself and be born as a man, but be born in such a state where he had to be laid in a place where animals normally ate. And there wasn't even room for in the public inn, as poor as that would be. Uh, but he was just born in a stable. And then there are there, there are other elements of, uh, indeed, more than ordinary abasement, because you find, for example, that he didn't even wasn't even born in a respected part of of uh, of the land. He was born in Galilee. And in seven, John seven fifty two, we have this little note, John seven fifty two where it says, And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. He cast us in his teeth. And there was no prophet that had come out of Galilee. Galilee was a very poor place, religiously to the Jews' mind and in every other way. It was a place of religious poverty, but also country cousins, in a very real sense. So it was a place generally looked down on by the Jews. But Jesus was a Galilean. And then also we must remember that his family was not a great family. This is not necessarily related to the fact of his being born in a stable. One can be born in a stable, conceivably, and still be of royal blood in the sense of the world's sense of social prominence. Now, he was indeed of the house and lineage of David, but his immediate family was a poor family and in a poor social condition. So we find in Mark 6, 3, them casting into this into the Jesus' teeth, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, etc., etc.? And they were offended at him. What's this carpenter doing teaching us? Now, Jesus was a carpenter. Uh, I've been Joseph. The husband of Mary was a carpenter, and Jesus followed his trade. It says so here. It doesn't say Joseph is the carpenter. They say, look at the carpenter. And a carpenter was not a, a high social position by any means. So in every turning of the way, indeed, he came not only to be born of uh, become flesh, the second step of the humiliation, uh, but uh, indeed under more than ordinary abasement. I don't think I'd better pass this by, however, without pointing out that in being born as a man, he, he, was, uh, he was not becoming that which, with whom he had no contact, because by creation, man was made in God's image. This is the point, as we pointed out a long time ago in these studies, that makes the incarnation, uh, uh, gives us a point of contact in the incarnation. But having said this, that he, man was made in God's own image, yet here you have the infinite creator, the creator, uh, laying his glory aside, point one, two, taking flesh upon himself in all these circumstances. 
Now, the third step of, uh, of his humiliation in the 48th uh, question and the first part of the answer of the longer catechism, how did Christ humble himself in this life? Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled. Christ humbled himself. There's more to that answer, incidentally. I'm just taking the first part of it. Christ humbled himself in this his life, that is, his life upon the earth, by subjecting himself to the law. And so we find that the next step of humiliation is that the great lawgiver placed himself under the law. So he whose character determines the law, it is his character that is the standard of the law of the universe. Yet we find in Galatians 4.4 it says, uh, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. That's point one, or step one here, but step two, made under the law. Made under the law. He put himself under the law. Now, it's perfectly true that this results in a very beautiful thing, the act of obedience of Christ, of which we've already spoken. Because, of course, you'll find you could build cross-references through all this, uh, through the humiliation and exaltation into what we've already studied as prophet, priest, and king. As I say, it doesn't follow, but it's parallel lines. So by submitting himself to the law and keeping it perfectly, there was the supplying, then, of the act of obedience of Christ. But yet putting himself under the law certainly was an act of humiliation for the great lawgiver. And again, in Philippians, uh, this Philippians 2 passage, but thinking of it especially... In this relationship, it goes on. I, I stopped at the seventh verse, but now to go on the eighth. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so the, the one who deserved obedience from all creation, the machines of creation such as the stars, up until the angels and men, he who deserved obedience from all cre creation turned and himself became obedient. He became obedient. This, is, this would be the great lawgiver, again, placing himself under the law. In Galatians 3.13, in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. But this first part, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. How? Because of the law. Here is a, a statement, a quotation from Deuteronomy. And he puts himself under it. So as he dies on the cross, the, the very law is, is that which which causes them then, as he puts himself under the law, it causes him to be the curse. He identified himself as sinful mankind on every side, with that, except with that not sinning, of course. So you have uh, an overwhelming identification here of Jesus with uh, what sinful mankind is. And this is a lack of uh, personal emphasis to say it this way. Uh, complete identification 
as my redeemer, as my mediator with what I am as a sinner. Then the next phrase of the uh, of this 48, the, uh, the answer to question 48, how did Christ humble himself in this life? It just goes on and says, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world. Of course, it's an older language, but don't let that turn us aside. It's beautiful. And by conflicting with the indignities of the world. And then I would just read to you Isaiah 53, just a couple of verses. He sh- for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And this is what is being referred to in the humiliations. The humiliation. Now, the next step of the humiliation, the first is laying his glory aside, the second is taking the form of a man, the third is the law, great lawgiver placed himself under the law, and the fourth is that the Holy One allowed himself to suffer every temptation that mankind can know. And uh, you have the temptation story of Jesus, for example, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I won't read it. But this doesn't mean for a moment, as, as sharp as this was, that this was his only temptation. He wasn't tempted only at the great uh, initial formal uh, temptation, but we find the book of Hebrews insisting very, very clearly that his temptation was a universal temptation. It reached down into all the areas and all the nasty areas and the corrupted areas in which you and I are tempted. There are no temptations that Jesus did not know. It was a universal temptation. Satan saw to this. You have the little phrase that after after the, the great period of temptation, the formal temptation at the beginning of his ministry, Satan left him for a time. You remember that little phrase. That's different from saying Satan left him. Satan didn't leave him. Whatever your temptations are in the dark of the night or in the, in the light, in the inside of ourselves or outside of ourselves, whatever our temptations are, the scriptures insist very much that Jesus knew them. For we have not a high priest, this is Hebrews 4.15, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And in 2, 17 and 18, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. But the humiliation of the Holy One being tempted... And in the last portion of this longer catechism question, 48, how did Christ humble himself in this life? And by conflicting with the temptations of Satan and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that his low condition. So you have the temptations. And we mustn't pass this by. Here is a sensitivity to sin surely beyond anybody's sensitivity to sin. Here is the Holy One of Israel. 
Here is the Holy One who is, whose character is of such a nature that he hates all sin. And yet the utter humiliation of deliberately bringing himself into contact with the very temptation which he hated, the very sin which he hated, and which would require his death to expiate. So great is his hatred of it that only his death and his shed blood can expiate it and remove the guilt of it. And yet he deliberately, as it were, nakedly puts himself into contact with it. If you read the gospel stories, keep this in mind. The, the agony of a sensitivity to sin which is infinite, being walking through the corrupted world and being deliberately accepting the temptations of man. So he was buffeted by sin, which is in every side in this world, and so often it doesn't really bother us at all. But it must have been an utter livid ang anguish to him. In the same area, as he allowed himself to be tempted in every point, like as we, is the rejection he, he, he uh, experienced. Uh, modern, those of us who know something about modern psychology, um, rejection buzzes in our ears like bees. The word rejection, much too much sometimes, perhaps. But anyway, it's, an, uh, it's a concept that is valid. But Jesus knew rejection. First of all, he knew rejection by his ancient people. In John 1.11, he came to his own and his own received him not. So his ancient people, whom he was the rightful king, promised all those years. When he finally came, he was utterly rejected by them. But it wasn't just something even as uh, overwhelming as this, but much more personal. He was rejected by his own family. Now, Jesus had half-brothers. The Roman Catholic Church says not, teaches a perpetual virginity of Mary, but there's nothing like that in Scripture. So, there's, so Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus' birth, born quite naturally. But these who, who were in his family, and if it is as supposed, though nowhere clearly declared in Scripture, that Joseph died at an early age, and therefore Jesus knew the temptations also of the raising of a family. And there, that's a very special temptations in this, of course, to all sorts of harassment uh, in the middle of the night and other places. And uh, the very ones, if this is so, that he raised, he who seems to have taken his father's place as the carpenter, the breadwinner of the family, the very ones which he sacrificed, as it were, everything to raise, they didn't accept him either during his life, natural lifetime. So we read in John 7, 3 through 5, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples almost also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he seeketh, uh, and he seeketh to be known openly. Very cutting words, really. If thou would do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe on him. So we find that until after his death, happily, after his death and resurrection, uh, they did believe. But during his lifetime, he knew utter rejection by his own family. 
Now, in uh, the next, of course, is his death. His death. And in question 49, how did Christ humble himself uh, in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. And there isn't a word there that isn't just absolutely scriptural. So what we have here is the next stage of his humiliation is his betrayal, his betrayal and his death. His betrayal and his death. And we do have, as we're introduced to this, first of all, in Luke 22:47 through 48, the fact of his betrayal by a kiss. His betrayal by the kiss. Whatever our problems are, uh, as we think of our lives, they're, they're all here in Jesus. They're all here. And uh, we find in 22, Luke 22, 47 and 48, And while he yet spake, behold a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? What a way to betray a friend. But it wasn't only Judas who betrayed him, but all the disciples fled. All the disciples fled. In Matthew 26, 56, Matthew 26, 56, the humiliation just goes down and down and down like a flight of dark, dark dungeon stairs, it seems to me. Matthew 26, 56. But all this was done that the scriptures, that the scriptures, the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. He didn't have anybody left around him. Doesn't say most of them did. Doesn't say everybody except John did. John was there later. But at this point, all the disciples, in the great hour of his need, forsook him and fled. Then if we had uh, a great deal of time, surely we ought to just turn the page in Matthew to Matthew 27 and read the, the rigors of his trial and the cross um, in Matthew 27, 1 through 50. And I, I, just, I won't read it. But I would suggest that you do read it with what I'm saying in mind. The downward steps of humiliation. The various forms of humiliation. The various forms of the agony in these hours. And as you read this, the, the meaning of it will escape any man, no matter how sensitive he is, unless he understands who this is that is allowing himself to be so treated. Because this is God who is allowing himself to be so treated. He doesn't have to for a moment can say a word and the legions of angels will come. He can say a word and creation will go out of existence. You must always remember that. 
you would be left alone with the Father and the Holy Spirit at a spoken word. And yet he just walks this road of humiliation. And it isn't in Scripture any concept of humanity suffering. This is the new kind of concept of, of what we find here, a mere symbol of humanity suffering in Salvador Dali's crucifixions and some of the new psychologists who use Christian terminologies. Um, their works, humanity is suffering. Just God is just suffering in the dilemma of creation and man. Nothing of this. Nothing, 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 nothing. It is here is here are his creatures and they have rebelled and and to be the to be the mediator, the propitiation, he walks this dark road. Just one step after another, from laying the glory aside to just glancing down through here, Matthew twenty seven, one through fifty. And then this this terrible end of the thing in Second Corinthians five twenty one. In Second Corinthians five twenty one we mustn't get confused here in thinking about the agonies and so forth. The the end of the thing, uh, the end of the thing is not the physical suffering, as great as that, and as acute as it must have been. But we read in Second Corinthians five twenty one, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now, the wonder is that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But don't hurry to the end of the verse. The first is what we're looking at. Be arrested there. For he hath made him to be sin who, for us who knew no sin. It doesn't say he sinned. That's a different thing. But he took, it, took our guilt upon him. He died there, the eternally holy one, having been tempted in every point, yet without sin, with no markings of sin, as it were, reached over and took, took our sin and placed it upon himself. And in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus speaks of this, uh, this same thing uh, in advance. When we find in Matthew 20, 28, verse, Even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. This is not something that a Christian should shrink back from, just because it is despised today by men who who have walked away from the, the riches of biblical reality. A ransom for many. The Holy One died, having become sin for us. And then finally, of course, the very end of the, the, of the uh, humiliation and the, the, all that's involved in it. And by humiliation, we don't mean just a light word, humiliation, like being humiliated, but the, the, the total crushingness of all that is involved in our redemption. And the end of it, of course, is in Matthew 27, 46, where we find Jesus looking up to his Father and saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here as he hangs on the cross, he actually took upon himself the sin of those who would accept him as Savior, and God the Father turned from him. And with this, it just doesn't seem possible. From the, from the first step of humiliation of 
choosing to lay his glory aside in order to undertake the mediatorial work to the place of being on the cross. And the eternal second person of the Trinity has been in communication and love with the Father for all eternity, having taken sin upon himself for us. If we accept him, for those who accept him as Savior, to such a place where the, certainly the physical sufferings were entirely blotted out by what's involved here. Because so great would be the discrepancy between them. Wherein he who knew the, the unstinted, open, Communion and communication with the Father, with it, which only infinite persons could know for all eternity, yet nevertheless was in a place where he could say in, at the final word, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then comes his death. However, his humiliation is not to be considered as ending with his death. It still presses on. And we read in, uh, in the Longer Catechism, question 50, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the word is, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in the words, he descended into hell. And of course, here they reach over and simply take the apostolic creed, what's usually spoken of as the apostolic creed. Now, this, he descended into hell, of course, in the Greek form, certainly should be he descended into Hades. But you do have the emphasis here, the humiliation continues, because... Just as a natural man, at the time of his death, his body and soul were unnaturally torn asunder. This, too, is humiliation. Because we must understand that God didn't make the body and soul to be torn asunder. Some of us have seen people die, and I guess any of us who have seen many people die are aware of a tremendous battle. Not always, but almost always. Struggle, 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 struggle. Here's an abnormal thing we're looking at. Here is body and soul being unnaturally torn asunder because of the, as a result of, the, of that series of separations which results because of man's sin. And Christ's body and soul were also torn asunder. You remember we saw in studying the person of Christ that he had a true soul. And here his body and soul are torn asunder. His body rested in the grave. His soul descended into Hades, the place of departed spirits. And in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, uh, 18 and 19, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, for Christ also hath once for all suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also, that is, in the flesh, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, I won't go into this this present moment, because I don't want to get involved with the, with the whole problem, though I think it's a very exciting, a very exciting series of references that relate to this. That actually, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That these who had had the promise 
uh, of the Messiah for so many millenniums and who had believed, but who had to wait until the price was actually paid. Now we're told by the payer himself that the price was paid and they were free. Tremendous and overwhelming moment. Again, I would point out the very antithesis of modern theology. So the price is paid and he's, his body and soul are separated and his body's in the grave. And if you were there that day, you could have seen his body lying there dead just as anybody else's body's dead. But does any other man's spirit, it's somewhere, it's not nowhere. And his spirit, soul descended into Hades, the place of departed spirits. And he gave the good news. Now, at that particular moment, the current changes. The tide changes. And just as up to this moment, we have a series of comprehensions of increased humiliation. Down, down, as I say, like dungeon steps, covered with water and in the midst of the darkness. And at this particular moment, it is a turn. And as from this point up to this point, there have been downward steps. So at this point, it turns and the exaltation commences. And in the longer catechism, we have the summary of this. What was the state of Christ's exaltation? The state of Christ's exaltation comprehended his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father and his coming again to judge the world. So some, has, some of his glorification, um, his exaltation has already occurred and some is yet to occur. Some is past, some is present, and some will be future. Now in Acts 2, 25 through 31, Acts 2, 25 through 31, the emphasis of change. The first thing is the, in the exaltation is that his body did not see corruption. The price is paid, and Christ's body did not have that aspect to it that other men's bodies have. And that is, the, as the Bible speaks of it, in our King James translation, corruption. Very fine word, actually, <laughs> considering what is involved here. Acts 2, 25 through 31. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. His work was finished. And then it reaches back to the Old Testament. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord. And this is quoted from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And they're simply quoting what David had said a thousand years before. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with my countenance. That's the end of the quote. 
And then the speech goes on, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So it couldn't refer to David, but it just it isn't that it just couldn't refer to David, but David didn't mean it to refer to himself. Because it says, Therefore being a prophet, that is David being a prophet, and knowing, that is David knowing, that God had sworn with an oath to him that, the, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his soul did see corruption. Exciting passage. Declaration from the scripture itself to David. I was speaking here as a prophet and understood he wasn't talking about his own body, which, of course, wouldn't make any sense because he did die and his body moldered away, but was speaking of the Christ in prophecy. So here you have this very exciting moment of the speech here and after Pentecost, and the glory is turned here. The exaltation is pointed out, that here is a point of exaltation. Indeed, his body was separated from his soul, but then came the resurrection, and in the resurrection, in this physical space-time historic resurrection, the exaltation begins because he did not see corruption. And in Luke 24, 36-43, Luke 24, 36-43, and as they spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and frighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. <laughs> so he says, Peace to them. But they had anything but peace. They were just scared to death because they thought they had seen what we in our day would say a ghost. It isn't that they didn't think they saw something, but they, they just thought it was a ghost, that's all. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts, thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, uh, Have ye here any meat? And he went ahead and ate it. And he took and did eat before them in the 43rd verse. In the 42nd, we're told what they gave him. They gave him a piece of boiled fish and a honeycomb. And he took and did eat before them. Now, this is a very, of course, very important note in the, the historicity of the, the physical resurrection. But notice that what we're talking about in exaltation now. The, the, he has died. The body has been torn from the soul, the soul from the body. But now here they are reunited. The body and soul are reunited. This is not just Christ's spirit that rose from the dead. It is the complete man with body and soul reunited. It wasn't what had been there just a little while before. That body in the tomb, the body was separated from soul. Here the exaltation is moving onward because it is... It is not just a spiritual resurrection, but a true resurrection in which the whole man is raised from the dead, body and spirit together, and in the exaltation is struck the note that the body and soul being brought together and the resurrection. We must point out, of course, in John 20, 25 through 28, 
the fact that it is the same body, or not only do we miss the wonder of the resurrection, but we miss also the understanding of the, the exaltation here. Because after all, his body, he had died there on the cross, and his body and soul had been separated. And now that same body, uh, which they had hammered to the cross and taken down, put in the grave, this same body was raised from the dead. So we find in the story of Thomas, John 20, 25 uh, through 28, and the other disciples therefore said unto him, It's Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, that's a full week, uh, again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. And there then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So here we have the resurrection of exactly the same body that the disciples had known before his death. It was the same body that came out of the tomb as was placed in it. And the longer catechism speaking of the, of the uh, question of exaltation and resurrection, how was Christ exalted in his resurrection, number 52, Christ was exalted in his resurrection, in that, not, have, not having seen corruption and death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, and having the same body in which he suffered, with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power, whereby he declared, he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have vanquished death and him that had the power of it, and to be Lord of quick and dead, all which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. They're tremendous words. And utterly the gospel message. The exaltation of Jesus in being raised from the dead, he does indeed as a public person. And as such, it is a promise on the basis of the victory and the exhibition beheld in his exaltation that our bodies will likewise be raised physically, space-time-wise from the dead. It's overwhelming. And then you have this lovely passage in Revelation 118 where he appears to John uh, and John is overwhelmed when he sees him in glory. And uh, as he John falls and his feet is dead when he sees Jesus in his glory. And uh, we find Jesus saying to John, I am he that loveth that liveth and was dead. And uh, the, the way they should read is, I am the living one that became dead. It's much stronger than the King James translation. I am the living one 
the absolute living one, incidentally. I am the living one that became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of death and Hades. That's what this passage should read. I am the living one, the absolute living one, life in myself. And I became dead. And I am alive forevermore. So we have the exaltation now uh, up through the resurrection. That's the first stage of exaltation. Just as we went downward in concept of steps of humiliation, now here is the first stage of exaltation. Resurrection. Soul and body together. No corruption to the body. And then the second, second step is the ascension. And it is at just this point that the new theology, the new orthodoxy, cannot follow. Bishop Robison is exactly right in putting his finger on this as the central problem. And no neo-orthodox man can really believe in an ascension because the concept to neo-orthodoxy is that heaven and all this, however one wants to word it or think of it from their viewpoint, is other. And how do you have a space-time historic body that can eat going into the philosophic other? Utterly impossible. So you, so the, the real test of neo-orthodoxy and a change of heart would not be the declaration of a physical space-time resurrection. That wouldn't prove anything. But a physical space-time ascension is, uh, is, would, would be what would be needed in order to declare that a neo-orthodox man had come back to a scriptural position. Instead of this, of course, Bishop Robinson, honest to God, put his finger exactly at this point of saying, here we can see the impossibility of it all from his viewpoint. So he's right in putting his finger at this crucial point. But the Bible says flatly that Christ did ascend into heaven. He did ascend into heaven. And this is the next step of the, uh, of the exaltation. And so we read in the Longer Catechism, 53, How was Christ exalted in his ascension? Answer. Christ was exalted in his ascension in that, having after his resurrection often appeared unto and conversed with his apostles, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he in our nature and as our head, triumphing over his enemies, visibly went up into the highest heavens, there to receive gifts of men, to raise up our affections thither, and to prepare a place for us where himself is, and shall continue till his second coming, at the end of the war. And this should be just placed in the front of your copies to honest to God, incidentally. Because this is what the Bible says. Just exactly. There's nothing there that isn't, isn't what the Bible gives. And we read it in the scriptural terms of Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had spoken these words, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, 
which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And theologically, nothing else will do. Biblically, nothing else will do. And incidentally, I would say philosophically, nothing else will do either. So now here you have the second stage of exaltation. First, resurrection. Secondly, ascension. So he showed himself on the earth for many days. He's taken up into heaven. And the emphasis is he goes from, from the earth, which is a place, to heaven, which is a place. And you want to say it just as hard as that. And this is a body that can eat. This is a body that can eat. Change body, a glorified body, but the same body and a body that can eat. The longer catechism goes on in 54. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and maketh intercession for them. And if you take the modern view, all this is just plain gone. What you're left with is just some sort of of empty so-called purpose dancing in the thin air that isn't there. So what you have now is the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus himself insists on just such a thing in this section we looked at the other day when we had our little memorial service next door for the little child that had died in John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many abiding places, not mansions and Sure, they are mansions. I'm going to talk about that. But it's a place to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And this thing I dwelled on the other day with the little children, if it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I don't like making things into anything that sounds like a quip, and far from that. But I think it just means that I wouldn't fool you. I just wouldn't fool you. If there wasn't anything there, I wouldn't go around telling you there was. I'm not that kind of a person. If there's nothing there, I've told you. Just the opposite. I go to prepare a place for you. And we're told in the in the scripture, of course, just as we've read and as we've already considered in Christ as priest in his present aspects, the present aspects of his priestly work, his present intercession, his present intercession. Question 55, how doth Christ make intercession? Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In our nature, I hope you notice that, that a loving little word. The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience 
notwithstanding daily, daily failures, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. So here we have Christ on the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Then this emphasis on his receiving gifts for us. In Acts 2, 32 and 33, uh, the passage that has uh, just finished, the, the David passage and the prophecy of David we read before in reference to the resurrection. And uh, the end of that was, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now hear and say. This is his work. The space-time situation of the day of Pentecost, the explanation is that Jesus Christ is exalted now to the right hand of God the Father, and as such he has begun to give gifts, and centrally of all things, given this gift of gifts to his people for the time that he will be absent, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John 7.39, we have the explanation that the Holy Spirit could not be given until something had happened. In John 7.39, remember Jesus is speaking of the Spirit, and he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost parts shall flow rivers of living water. And then you have a parenthesis added by inspiration by John himself. But this spake he of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should, that is future, receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And we're using the terms exaltation, but glorified would be a parallel word. And the notice is here, until Jesus has finished his work and the humiliation is over and the glorification has reached this point of Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension until this takes place. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was, would not be given, could not be given because the price was not paid. But when the price is paid, when the price is paid, then he can go down, as we have said, and preach to the prisoners and say the work is done and sitting on the right hand of God the Father, the gift can be poured out of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says on the day of Pentecost, you've seen this. Well, the explanation of it is now he is exalted. He is on the right hand of God the Father, exalted, and he has poured out this gift. So you have Pentecost. And the fact that we who are Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this, the end, how does Christ make intercession? Uh, a few little phrases and words that are written in proof text at the bottom of this particular. Most of these verses I've given you aren't given in, these, in the catechisms, but I have a few verses here I'll just read from the proof text because they're especially lovely at this particular point. And procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failures. And they quote from 1 John 2, 1 and 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's so point out this doesn't mean that all come under the propitiation, but that there is no other in all the world. If we sin, 
and then John puts himself under it, we have, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I would commend to you in the, in the question of, of salvation from our conscience, the writings of Martin Luther in the book of Galatians, and also our, the study of sanctification, a special study in the sermons which will follow, which will be the next study to immediately follow these doctrinal studies, taking the place of sanctification in these doctrinal studies, and that is the series of sermons called True Spirituality, which will be the next of these studies. Procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failures. It isn't just an abstract concept, but it should be indeed quiet of conscience in the midst of our daily walk, on the basis of Christ's work. And then access with boldness to the throne of grace. And the reference they give is Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And again, an acceptance of their persons. An acceptance of their persons. And the quotation, Ephesians 1.16, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So our persons are accepted. But not only our persons, the last phrase here is, and services. That is, the acceptance of their services. And the quotation, 1 Peter 2.5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You needn't think our services are a super added thing. They too are accepted because we are in Christ. They are accepted not because of their lights and perfections, but because of the finished work of Christ. So these last phrases together in 55 and procuring for them, quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failures, failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. I would commend to you that this is beautiful language and, and biblical theology. A couple other verses of the glory of Christ now in, in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.22 the exaltation of Christ at the present. Ephesians 1.22 And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things uh, to the church. And Philippians 2.9 This is most selective. We could, of course, take a long, long time on this. But Philippians 2.9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and give him a name which is above every name. That's present. And finally, in Colossians 2.9 and 10, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So now in the wonder of the exaltation, we have that which is past in the resurrection, the bringing together of the body and the soul. We have that which is past at a point of time and in space. 
in the ascension, and we have that which is present. But there is one more aspect, and that is there is also a future aspect of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Future aspect of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, related, of course, to our uh, the beginning of our study tonight, Christ is King, in the aspect of the future. And in the in the longer catechism, it just goes right on. And again, we might wish that there was a bit more clarity of detail, but nevertheless, uh, a very fine statement indeed. In 56, how is Christ to be, that's future, exalted in his coming again to judge the world? Answer. Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world, in that he, who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men, shall come again at the last day in great power, and in the full manifestation of his own glory and of his Father's, with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, to judge the world in righteousness. And this too is totally scriptural. So he who didn't call upon the angels will come with his angels. He who is the great lawgiver placing himself under the law will come as judge. He will come as judge. These passages are overwhelmingly, uh, this passage overwhelmingly biblical. You have with all his, he'll come with all his holy angels. And in Luke 9:26, we find Jesus saying, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. With a phrase, with a trumpet of God, we have 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God the trumpet of God with the phrase to judge the world in righteousness we have Acts 17.31 Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And in case you don't know where that reference is, it's in the great speech on Mars Hill. Overwhelming word in such a setting. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And we could do nothing better, surely, as we come to the end of the conclusion of his exaltation, just to read uh, Revelation 19, 9 through 16. Revelation, here, 9 through 16. Here you have Christ coming back again to the earth. And when he comes, Jew and Gentile alike will know that the one they humiliated and crucified is indeed what he claimed to be when he was on the earth. And that is the Old Testament prophesied Messiah, the only Savior of men, King of kings and Lord of lords, and indeed God. And here you have the whole force of, of the world gathered against God. At the culmination of revolution. Culmination is not yet. 
and the culmination of revolution. And he said unto me, Blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in, white, in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, for our, to become our mediator, to be our prophet, priest, and king, with the gifts of the past, the present, and the future, he walked the dark road downward to utter humiliation, even to that great cry upon the cross. But it does not end there. The steps have come upward. The exaltation of the resurrection, the uniting of the soul and the body, the exaltation of the ascension, the present exaltation, and the future exaltation of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords the only Savior of men and Sovereign God. As we come to this, we come to the end of our study, and I trust it's more than a study to us, of the wonder of the work of Christ as mediator. And as far as emphasis is concerned, I, w I would stop. But for the sake of the study and completeness, I would remind you where we are that we have considered what the Bible has to say about God and then God's dealing with men in the concept of the covenant of works, the fall, the covenant of grace, the unity of the covenant of grace, and then the base for the whole redemption being the work of Christ as mediator. The Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ coming the Messiah, who he is in his person, his work as prophet, priest, and king, and now his humiliation and exaltation. And this is the end of this section. And the Lord willing, beginning next time, we begin the study of salvation. Our riches as Christians are what Christ has purchased for us. And this ends now the 19th study uh, of these doctrinal lectures. <laughs>